0: The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Fantastic. Wow, that was so cool. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, team. Thanks, kids. Kids, did you enjoy that? (laughs) Big kids, did you enjoy that? I love that. That was fantastic. Well, it was supposed to be raining today, wasn't it? I was kind of glad when I heard that we were going to have an indoor service because the last time I preached outdoors, <laughs> you all left me. It's good to be together. Well, most of you know because with Facebook, at the end of last year, late last year, Nat and I took the girls' on a theme park hopping adventure holiday to celebrate my 40th. And we had a blast there, just what the doctor ordered. On the third day of our trip, our holiday, we decided to venture to Movie World. I'd never been there before, and Nat had been there, and she told me stories about Movie World. And so we rocked up, and we had a great time. And about halfway through the day, Nat and I decided to take the girls' on a family fun, family happy ride. And so off in the distance, we noticed this ride, the Wild West Adventure ride. And so the girls looked at it and they said, it looks a bit scary. And Nat and I, we convinced them, we pulled out the card that us parents pull out at times like that. Have we ever lied to you before? And they were like, good point. And so we took them. We skipped towards the line, but being the Wild West ride, of course, Will Smith was doing his thing on the screen, and so we were singing along to the track, and we were having a happy, happy time. And then the moment of truth came for us to actually jump on the boat, looked like a log, a floating log, and so we jumped on, and like we'd promised, it was really, really calm. I mean, we were going breakneck speed of about three kilometers per hour. We were just merrily, merrily down the stream, having a great time turning little corners, and it was awesome. It was a family happy ride for about 30 seconds, and everything changed. We turned a corner, and there in front of us was this huge, steep incline, and the girls were like, are we going up there? I was like, yeah, we're going up there. What made matters really, really bad for us, more alarming, was that it was heading towards this kind of dark tunnel. And if you've ever been on any of these rides, they don't just kind of push you up, send you up smoothly, they clunk up, don't they? They jerk up, so it was clunk, 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 clunk. And every time it clunked, Kaylee, who was next to me, and she gave me permission to say this, I didn't want to embarrass my girls, but say that, tell them what really happened, okay, so I'll tell them. Her eyes were getting bigger and bigger as it clunked, clunk, her eyes were... In she was freaking out. Maddie was in the back with Nat. She was freaking out. Maddie, I don't want to be on this ride anymore. Annabelle, she was in the front with a complete stranger. And so the higher... <laughs> That's what we do as parents. You'll be all right. <laughs> as the ride was going higher and higher, it was getting darker and darker. Until we reached the top, the summit, it was pitch black. And there were gunshots going off in there, you know, Wild West Ride. The girls were stressing out, freaking out. And then the ride, the little log boat thing that we were in, started to spin round. Like, what the heck? This was meant to be a fun family ride. and it just stopped. And there were some big noises like mines going off. And then the ride shot us. Not forwards, but backwards down this slope. And we hit the bottom. The water came in. Maddie, she wanted to jump out and swim to safety, but to keep her in. Kaylee was freaking out to console her. And for the rest of the ride, we had to comfort our girls. True story, about half an hour after the ride, after emotionally scarring our girls, probably for the rest of their lives, our adrenaline junkie, Annabelle, where is she? She rocks up to me and she says, Dad, I want to go back on the Wild Rest adventure ride. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? So, yeah. All right. So off we went. I did the whole thing again. The Will Smith singing thing queued up. The second time, the story was completely different. Instead of us being scared. We had a blast, and you all know the reason why, right? The fact that we knew what awaited us on the ride made all the difference. We knew what was coming, and because of that, we were ready. We were prepared for what Will Smith would throw at us. Without sounding far-fetched, church, the point that we're going to think about, investigate today from Daniel chapter 8... Is similar. Daniel chapter eight is about helping us as the people of God know what is ahead of us, what awaits us, so that we, as the people of God, are better prepared. In other words, the vision that we're going to think about, Maddie, I like the way you're praying there. It's awesome. Just move over to this, just so I don't jump on you, darling. I don't want to hurt you. Everyone's heard about my good parenting already this morning. I don't hurt you. Daniel and his vision, as we'll see, is largely about preparing the people of God to remain loyal and dedicated to God, even in a world that sometimes is hostile to God. That's, that's the big idea. If you are new here today, or if you weren't around last week, we kicked off a new teaching series um, entitled Your Kingdom Reigns. And it's in the latter part of Daniel, the last six chapters, which are the apocalyptic chapters, the kind of the crazy chapters, but they're also super encouraging. And so today we land on Daniel chapter 8. We're going to think about this chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter out because it's quite long. We're going to jump in at verse 15 and read to the end. But just to give you a heads up, if you haven't had a chance to reflect on the chapter this this week... um, Daniel, this is his second vision, and he sees a bunch of animals. The first animal he sees is a a ram, and it's a strange-looking ram. It's a fierce-looking ram, but it's strange because it has two horns, but one is short, the other is long. And this ram essentially slams all the other animals, it dominates, and then in the height of its power... This shaggy goat with a single horn from the west appears and it's swift, it's strong, it's fierce and it knocks this ram to the ground and stamps all over, tramples all over the ram. And then this shaggy goat with this horn, things are going to get more crazy, the horn is snapped off and in its place four horns appear. Are you confused yet? It gets even worse, right? Because one of the horns, a small horn, kind of starts to grow out of one of the four horns. And it starts small. and no, it's freaky. And it begins to grow and it becomes more domineering. In fact, it reaches to the heavens and grabs some of the stars and throws some of those stars to the floor. This is where we join the apocalyptic narrative in verse 15. This is what we read. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision... And trying to understand it. We all know what he means, right? Understand this vision. There before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, I think this is Jesus by the way. Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its sides is the first king. He's talking about Alexander the Great. Verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off, represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, and this is what we're going to think about more extensively this morning. When rebels became, have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, this small horn, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation, will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, against God himself. Yet he will be destroyed, amen, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. We are worn out just thinking about this. I'm worn out just reading it. I lay exhausted for several days, though I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Lord, bless your word to us, God. As we think about this chapter, Daniel 8, Help us learn, Lord. Help us take some things home with us that will enable us to remain loyal and dedicated and faithful to you. Amen. So this is my plan, really straightforward, easy plan, twofold plan. We're going to think about history first, just dig a little into this chapter, in particular thinking about this small horn, who is he, why is that so significant, and then our story, things that we can learn how this history ought to influence our own story as the people of God. So first up, history. The year is 175 BC, and a man, a cruel, arrogant, narcissistic ruler, the little horn, arises, comes to power. His name? Antiochus the IV Epiphanes. Hands up if you have heard of him. There he is. He's had a nose job. <laughs> <laughs> Antiochus Epiphanes. Awesome name, but he was a million miles from awesome. This guy was one slippery, cunning character. In fact, he came to power the Seleucid Empire, how he came about power is that he actually pushed his nephew out of the way. And so if you've ever seen The Lion King, that's exactly what Scar does in the movie. Simba's the next king, pushes him out of the way. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes did the same thing to his nephew. His nephew was next in line, and he, because we're told in verse 23, was a master of intrigue and manipulation. He just knocked him off, basically, and he became the ruler, the leader. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes, is interesting. It actually means, literally means, God manifest. He really sincerely believed that he was the Olympian god, Zeus, the Greek god, in human form. Hence why in the text we read of him kind of reaching for the heavens because he wanted to be deemed a god. As I said, he was a cunning, slippery character. He had the annoying ability of buttering people up. I think he read Dal Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends, Influence People. If you know that book, I think he was an expert at doing just that. He knew how to make friends and influence people, but then literally he would stab some of those friends in the back just to get ahead. For our purposes, though, we need to fast forward a little bit to 167 B.C. Because Antiochus did something in this year that no ruler had really done before, at least not to the same extent. You see, he took an extreme disliking to the people of God. He hated with a passion the Jews. Much like Hitler did during the Second World War, this guy loathed the Israelites. And so in that year, 167 BC, he sent his chief tax collector, Apollinus, to destroy Jerusalem. He sent him to Jerusalem and pillage and rape and murder and ruin were the orders of the day, and it actually did happen. To make life even worse for the people of God, Antiochus then insisted on a forced paganization program intended to corrupt and destroy every aspect of Israel's faith and practice. Just a few examples he Antiochus out of an act of sheer defiance against God and the people of God he took a pig I mean today now you know pigs are clean we enjoy eggs and bacon thank you Jesus but back then pigs were unclean and he took a pig into the temple of Yahweh and sacrificed that pig on the altar just to say kind of up yours God I am the true God in other words If an Israelite was found with Torah, like a scripture, scriptures, they would be immediately put to death, immediately. If a Jewish household parents had their young male son circumcised, Antiochus, if he found out about it, again, he would put them to death immediately. It was a very bleak, desperately dark period of time for the people of God, in fact, so dark Things were so terrible under Antiochus Epiphanes IV that even in our passage in verse 13 of Daniel 8, some of the angels actually cry out. They speak to each other and say, how long will this go on for? Which is intriguing, interesting. In the Bible, as you would know, you know, the people of God sometimes call out to God and say that. How long? You know, How long will this judgment last? How long will this misery go on for? But remarkably, the angels, as they look down upon what was happening, Antiochus, all the terrible things he was doing to the people of God, they say, this is just diabolical. This is disastrous. How long? Such was his Regime. His was a systematic program designed to eliminate the Israelites, the people of God, from the face of the earth, and no doubt sounds familiar. It's what Hitler tried to do during the Holocaust, during the Second World War. Antiochus was an Antichrist figure, but praise be God, because of God's grace, Antiochus met his end, met his match in 164 BC due to the Maccabean revolt, and you can read about that in the book of Maccabees. Now, the history lesson has now finished, okay? So if you just took a well-deserved nap, like, ah, uh, hated history at school, you can, you can wake up, and I, I hated history at school. I was terrible at history. In fact, I was terrible at most subjects at school. I went to school for lunch <laughs> and sport after school. It was awesome. We need to now think about, okay, there's some historical details, this Antiochus dude how is this history to shape our stories as Christians, as individual believers and as a church community? What are we meant to take home as we reflect just for a moment on, on this chapter, Daniel chapter 8? Well, two things I want to hone in on. This is not going to be long, but two important things. First, I think we need to cultivate or continue to cultivate, It's probably a better way to put it, A practice or the practice of thanking God for his kindness. You can take Antiochus off now. (laughs) For his kindness. I need to cultivate this practice, this rhythm of thanking him for his kindness. Let me explain what I mean here. Why would God go to such lengths to spill so much ink to describe and detail this guy Antiochus. Because we need to realize that really compared to other ancient rulers, this guy was a nobody. He was a small fish. Small fish. I mean, and, uh, Alexander the Great, we all know about him and how he Hellenized the world and the effect that he had on the world. But he gets one verse in chapter 8. Antiochus, mainly the whole chapter is about him. Why? Why? The answer is because God was expressing his great love for his people. He knew that Antiochus was going to unleash hell upon his people. And so he wanted to prepare them for that. He didn't want them to be taken by surprise. He wanted them to know, 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 so they would be prepared so that when Antiochus finally did enter the stage of history, that the people wouldn't fall away, that the people of God would say, oh, this is the one that Daniel prophesied about. It was an expression of his kindness. Interestingly, in John's gospel, Jesus does the same thing for us. In John chapters 15 and 16, Jesus After telling us, okay, you've got to abide in me. We're going to think about that in just a moment. But he says nine times, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. And then immediately he tells us about some of the trials and the troubles we might face as Christians. He says, you know, you're my apprentices. You're carriers of the message. And being carriers of the message will mean in this world, because not everyone is going to receive the message, hostility. A certain level of pushback. Even full-blown persecution ending in death. Why does Jesus tell us all these things? Well, we're told. Verse 1 of John 16. Listen to what he says. He says, all this I have told you, the hostility, the pushback, so that you will not fall away. You will not fall away. One writer says that what Jesus says here in verse one of John chapter 16 really sums up the main thrust, the main purpose of Daniel chapter eight. God wanted to warn his people, forewarn them so that they would be forearmed against falling away, forearmed against disbelief and coldness of heart. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us here. He warns us. He doesn't want us to have a false sense of security. He wants us to be aware of the possible dangers ahead so that we're prepared, so that we know what awaits us and that ought to make all the difference. I love what one writer, Ralph Davies, says about this. He says, Jesus hides nothing in fine print. He buries nothing in obscure footnotes. In faithfulness, expression of his kindness, he forewarns us and so forearms us. He forearms us. God wants to prepare all of us for what might be ahead so that we can keep our heads above the icy waters of spiritual apathy. Because sometimes when we face trials and tribulation, the temptation is just to ease off. The temptation is just to be nominal. The temptation is just to go to ground. The temptation is... Will be not to stand up for truth, and I'm I'm not talking for a moment here about having a victim mentality, you know, where we view the world as the vampire and we kind of have our garlic and our wooden crucifixes. You know, everyone's the end. I'm talking about that. That's that's not good news either. Where everything's a conspiracy theory and everyone's the anti That's that's not helpful. I think Hill shared a lot on that last week, but I'm talking about just being aware of what's ahead. Especially as we carry the gospel, especially as we live faithfully for Jesus, there will be both hunger from people, people will be attracted, but then there also will be hostility and we need to be aware of that. And so this is a deep expression of his kindness here in Daniel 8 and in John 15 and 16 because he doesn't want us to fall away from him. From our sure footing, yeah? So we need to cultivate this thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness that you warn us to forearm armor. Secondly, this is even more important. The Lord, I believe, would love for us to cultivate or continue to cultivate a rhythm of stillness before God. A Stillness before God. I'm thinking here about abiding in the vine, remaining in Jesus. Now, doesn't this, come on, sound Attractive, especially in our turbulent age, just stillness, kind of rest in the presence of God. Who's with me? It is appealing. It's very attractive, but it's also flipping difficult in our day. It's difficult because there's so much turbulence, so much hurry. We're overloaded with deadlines and there's busyness and there's restlessness. Externally but also internally. Psychologists call it psychological hurry, where we just, shh, things are always spinning in our brains. And so when we try and abide, we, we find that so difficult. But the, the important thing is that we really do need to abide in Jesus. Because enduring to the very end, like faithfully, depends on abiding in Jesus Christ. The way that we can remain for Jesus is by remaining in Jesus. This is why it's really important what Jesus says in John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. He says nine times over and over, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Have you got the point yet? Jesus is saying abide in me, abide in me. He says if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. And one thing we won't be able to do is endure to the very end. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, he said, because wickedness will increase, the love of most will grow cold. Remember when he said that? But those who endure to the end shall be saved. When Jesus says the love of most, he's, he's talking about his people. He's talking about us. He's saying, hey, I don't want your love to grow cold. I do want you to endure But how do we actually safeguard ourselves, our hearts, from going cold on Jesus? Answer, stillness before God. That's how we can still ourselves against unbelief and coldness of heart by being still in the presence of God. Unwinding, feasting on his goodness, feasting on his faithfulness, abiding in him, as I mentioned, enduring demands and requires abiding. If there's little abiding, there will be little enduring. One writer, in fact, he's a professor, Michael Zigarelli, a couple of years ago he conducted an extensive study, a survey, where he surveyed 20,000 plus Christians. And it was a five-year program, five-year survey, and he had quite a few findings. But this is one of his findings. Quote, The accelerated pace and activity level of the modern day, listen, distracts us from God and separates us from the abundant, joyful, victorious life He desires for us. Who knows what He's talking about? Yeah, just be honest. Right? He's onto something here. After doing this extensive study, this is what He found, amongst other things. You know, the great tyrant, the great dictator. You know what that is? It's distraction. Distraction is the new dictator. Distraction is the new tyrant. And if we're going to be people who stand firm, true to Christ, right to the very end, we've got to be people who abide, as I've just said. But to abide requires that we rebel against this dictator. Distraction. Notice what Zigarelli goes on to say. These words are chilling, haunting. He says, it may be the case that one... Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives. Which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God. Which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live Which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of business, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. I think what he's doing, what he's doing, he's putting language to Jesus' warning in Matthew 24, 12. Because, you know, we don't just wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, you know what? I don't love you anymore, Jesus. No, it happens. It's a very slow fade. It's this subtle downward spiral of not abiding and then this creeps in where God is just pushed to the edges to the periphery and we start to adopt and take on secular views and what's the end what's the end result you know the end result is nominal christianity where we become just nominal And likely, you know, when persecution comes and hardships come, you know what happens to nominal believers, Christians? They fold. They cave in. Because there's no joy, this abundant joy, this victorious life that he desires for each of us is is not there. We're running on empty. We're depleted. Who knows what I'm talking about? Come on, I'm not saying these things to freak us out, but just to make us more aware. Because the new dictator is distraction and hurry and fanaticism. Yeah? So the reason why I want us to consider this, to cultivate this rhythm of slowing down, is because enduring demands abiding. We will not endure to the end if we don't pull into Jesus and drink deeply of his love, if we don't stop in at the fountain of his grace again and again and again, we will not experience that joy within that's supposed to be our strength. And we might find ourselves giving in, giving up. I want to finish with this a passage that I've been reflecting on just this week. Psalm 16. I've been loving this psalm. Someone put me onto this little app and I've been boring Hillary and uh, Sarah all week about it. It's called Dwell, this little app, and I encourage you to check it out. You can do seven days for free, and then you've got to subscribe, unfortunately. But it's a great app, and it's a Bible-reading app, and it's just put together so wonderfully. And so, really, it's revolutionized my quiet time, because as a pastor, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the Word, and writing the Word, and speaking the Word, but I don't spend much time actually absorbing it, just receiving it allowing someone else to speak it over my life and so i found this dwell app really really important and really really special and so psalm 16 i've been meditating on it at the beginning of the psalm david says god can you keep me safe like literally someone wanted to kill him and he says god you are my refuge now that's the language of what abiding like someone's trying to keep up, I'm, I'm going to make you my refuge. And then throughout the rest of the psalm, we follow the journey of his soul until we arrive at verse 8 where he says, I've set you before me. God, with you at my right hand, I will not be shaken. How wonderful. He moves from fear and anxiety, God saved me, to, you know what? Now I realize That, oh, okay, externally, there's chaos, there's turbulence, but my interior life is one of rest and peace and wholeness because now I know that I'm secure in you. I know my true life and satisfaction identity is found in you. You're by my side and, hey, I will not be shaken. You see, church, this is the assignment for this week. Maybe just grab Psalm 16 or the psalm that does that for you and just spend some time trying to cultivate this rhythm, this practice of just stilling yourself, abiding, spending some time going over that psalm. It might be just one verse that the Holy Spirit opens up for you. and You can just sit and abide and remain in Jesus because if we're going to remain faithful to Jesus... We need to remain in Jesus. We need to remain in him. Lord, thank you. Lord God, we don't want to give in to the great tyrant of distraction and hurry and overload, Lord. Of course, Lord, we are busy people. We need to do many things, Lord. But I pray that we would not give in to psychological hurry, that inner restlessness that ruins our relationships primarily our relationship with you. And so, Lord God, would you enable us, Lord God, to just still ourselves, to be those who abide, those who experience that inner rest, so that, Lord God, we may be a people who thank you for your kindness, be a people, Lord God, who are wise, be a people, Lord God, who are loving, Lord. Father, Father, do this, Lord God in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so that we actually will be able to remain faithful to you, true to you, to the very end. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.